This episode of the Ready Room is brought to you by Audible.com, offering the largest selection of audiobooks for your smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org for more information. And if you'd like to help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day, consider becoming a patron of the network through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm and find out how you can become part of the team. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. I'm Jeff Combs. I'm everywhere on Star Trek, and you keep tuning in to Trek FM. Welcome to the Ready Room, show number 162, The Man Who Killed Vrenak Valance. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me this week is Matthew Rushing. We'll be talking about some Star Trek news, including the new streaming service from CBS, a petition for Destination Star Trek London 2016, new offerings from Larry Nemechek's Trekland Trunk, and recommendations for spooky Halloween treks. Then in the feature, we're joined by Jeremy Reed and Jamie Sanchez to discuss the DS9 episode in the Pale Moonlight. So let's step into the ready room. Hello, Matthew. It's good to have you back here on The Ready Room once again. This competition between you and Char to see who can co-host the most between now and the end of the year is really heating up. Chris, uh, it, it really is. Um, we, we don't even we don't even iMessage anymore. Uh, it, it's so it's so bad. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, not because a- you hear all the time anyway, <laughs> yeah. right? Over in the corner, I can't. You've got your cot there. Shar's on the exactly. other side of the studio. Oh her cot. Yep. Um, so, but it, it's been great. It it reminds me a little bit. You remember that catwalk episode from from Enterprise? Yeah, we're mm-hmm. in those close quarters and. Uh, we're just we're just fighting to see who can be on you know the the ready room yeah. next and so it's, one of you's watching water polo on your iPad the other one is doing some kind of scientific research yeah she does a lot of meditating too um, as well so you know the weird part about Shar though is that her meditation she makes these noises like Beavis and Butthead while she's sitting there otherwise very serene yeah it's it is quite odd to hear everybody (laughs) so uh but it's great to be back so well matthew take a close look at me right here i've become slightly borg i now have my artificial lens inside my eye what do you think are you concerned i'm going to assimilate you uh, I was for a moment, and then I realized it's 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 just the one eye. It hasn't taken over anything else. Apparently, right. that inhibitor the doctor put in is is helping to keep the the Borg implants from spreading. So that's that's good news. That's good. Yeah, I have these drops here. They say anti nanite, zero point one percent. So good thing he gave me those. Yeah, I'm glad because well it. It's got to be good for you, Chris, that you can finally see things again. How does that feel? Oh, it's nice. I started reading books again, which is really nice. So, And um, the the one thing that when, when I came down the first day, I had the, the patch off and we came down into the area 
uh, there in Yokohama. And I told my wife, wow, the real world actually is 3D. Because I had become so accustomed to seeing everything with basically one eye that it, it really did look like everything was 3D. So that was a nice experience. But let's, uh, well, let's jump into news here. Enough about what's going on here with my eye and such. Uh, the first news story we have, Matthew, is one that was announced back on October 16th. And it's been discussed in the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. And some people are really concerned about this CBS All Access the announcement by CBS that you can now subscribe for $6 per month to CBS content without needing a cable subscription. It's something you can just watch online and on your devices. Well, Chris, this is this is a really interesting thing. Um, and, you know, I, I know that a, a lot of networks that have, have been thinking about things like this because, um, you know, making their content available to anybody who wants it, you know, so that you don't even, I mean, honestly, you don't even have to have your television set up for reception at that point. You, as long as you had the internet, you, you could get this. And so, um, it's, it's quite an interesting thing to me to, to kind of see this, this playing out with all sorts of places. I mean, um, CBS is going to be doing this or is doing this now, um, they even said Showtime's going to be available similarly in the future. Uh, we know mm-hmm. HBO, which is of course owned by CBS, right? Uh, HBO itself is going to be starting to do this with its service in 2015, and so a lot of these places are, are going to be going, I, I think, and and moving towards this to give people access. But I mean, it doesn't worry me, Chris. But what I do think is that it, it's one of those things where we kind of asked for something, then we didn't realize what it was actually going to get us. And, right, you know, right. I, so so I think you can stream what, what Netflix for like maybe nine dollars a month, you know, and you have. I think it is like and for me, because I've had Netflix for a long time, I'm grandfathered into the previous pricing. Right. Me too. I think yep. seven ninety nine. Yeah. I think eventually for us that will change. But for a certain period of time, we're grandfathered in. But yeah, I think nine ninety nine is the current one. But you get so much. Oh yeah, ninety nine with yeah. Netflix. Well, and and so so say for us, like we're both paying around probably the seven ninety nine price. I think I've been a Netflix member for you know the last like four years, and so mm-hmm. um, if not more, it seems like now. And so this is six dollars a month, and you know you're getting these CBS shows. Now you'll get shows like Cheers, but you're not going to get the new shows like The Big Bang Theory. So I'm not really sure. You know what the 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 real benefit of it is to me, and and then you have shows like okay, so you have TOS, TNG, and Enterprise. They're all in HD, but then you'd be streaming Voyager and Deep Space Nine in SD, and and right. so it, it it's like CBS is already shooting themselves in the foot by not having some of their content in HD that they would be streaming. Right. Um. So so, so that goes back to another discussion that we had recently about. Why do they need to do DS9 and Voyager in HD? Throwing the whole Blu-ray thing out. Forget the Blu-ray. You know, I've been saying for years that they have to do all the series in HD so that they can syndicate them. And now that they've started CBS All Access, exactly as you say, they and this might actually help because they may realize themselves that Wow, now now we want to offer something to attract people to our service for six dollars per month. 
and they're saying, well, you know, DS9 Voyager, they're still SD. Now, if that was HD, maybe. And of course, you can get TOS, TNG, and Enterprise on Netflix right now, but they're still SD, I believe, right, on Netflix, or are they HD at this point? Right now, uh, TNG is still SD, and um, TOS wasn't upgraded until the entire series was done. And okay. so I, I'm pretty sure that we'll probably not see TNG upgraded on on Netflix and until the whole series until finally all seven is released. There. That would make sense. Yeah, yeah. So it is interesting too, as well, that it doesn't look like even Enterprise right now is is streaming in in uh, the HD that it could be. So, um, okay. you know, there there is the ability for them to to really offer something that you aren't getting other places. But at the same time, you know, think about this. You know. I, the i the iMac just got upgraded to a 5K display, which mm-hmm. is way better than any television that exists right now. Can you imagine streaming SD content on a 5K display <laughs> and how terrible? Well, you can have it, it way up in the corner. It won't bother anything else on the screen. <laughs> I you could, Chris, I, but I'm I'm just shocked at the idea of like you would have to have it in such a small box for it to look okay. Right. Um, you, you know, you really are, again, you're just kind of shooting yourself with a foot in a world that is going to be extremely HD. Well, so apart from the HD thing though, because that is another discussion that we have had before, what people are concerned about, but how this does play in is that CBS might remove Star Trek from Netflix and that the only way you would be able to stream Star Trek moving forward would be CBS all access Now, I posted in our group that I don't think CBS will go that way. I think that a few years ago, they may have tried that. But I think that today, the executives can understand that they make far more money from Netflix than they can hope to make, at least in the next few years, through people signing up for CBS All Access a la carte. But what they could do to differentiate it is to keep Star Trek on Netflix just as it is right now, or potentially even not allow any HD Star Trek content on Netflix. And you have to go to CBS All Access if you want to get HD for TOS, TNG, and Enterprise. And and then DS9 Voyager doesn't really play into the picture because even if they start today working on those, it's probably going to be what? three or four years minimum before they made it to the end of those two series with remastering. So you can kind of throw that out of the picture at the moment, but as a long-term plan, it could be there. But they've allowed you to stream Star Trek through StarTrek.com for free for a number of years now, and it's on Netflix as well. So I don't really see them pulling it from Netflix personally. And that's what a lot of Star Trek fans are concerned about, though, is that they might have to pony up $6 just to stream Star Trek. Yeah, I could could see them doing that where you could only get your HD content with uh, it being CBS All Access or them with with obviously blu-rays um and and then obviously making that jump to putting like deep space nine and voyager and blu-ray as well so that it was actually an incentive to get the blu-rays um because then i don't think they'll do that though i I think that they understand that today blu-rays are great but really digital that's what people expect these days 
Yeah, and I, I, I don't think that they'll do that either. Um, it, it just seems, in, in the end, like this whole idea of kind of going a la carte, in some ways that it makes a lot of sense. And yet at the same time, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm gonna, I, would, I might end up paying the exact same amount that I do for cable, <laughs> and and those kind of things that I do, you know, um, for all of these a la carte, uh, you know, streaming services. Yeah. And so I, 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 I'm not sure how the future is going to judge this, how well it'll work, but I guess we'll all see. We'll see. Uh, what I am happy to see about this is that I'm a cord cutter. I We have an antenna on the top of the house that we use to pick up just your standard broadcast Japanese television. But otherwise, we have Netflix and we have Hulu. And then there's YouTube. And that's how we consume all of our content. We don't have cable. We got rid of our cable about two years ago. And we use Apple TV. I have an Apple TV in the studio. I have one in the living room. And what is very frustrating is that you will keep seeing icons pop up on Apple TV for ABC and you know ESPN and all these different channels. But in order to use them, you have to verify that you have a cable subscription. And I've always felt, well, what is the point? Especially with something like ABC or CBS. What's the point? If I have a cable subscription, I can watch it on my television. If it's CBS, I can put an antenna on my house and watch it. Why do I need to prove that I have a cable subscription? So I'm really happy to see them doing this because I think that this, what CBS is doing and what HBO is doing, this is lighting the fire that will quickly burn down the traditional cable subscription model. And I think that's a really, really good thing. I don't think that this particular service is very compelling. If I were in the U.S., I don't think I would subscribe to CBS All Access. Uh, you know, the Big Bang Theory not being on there, it's also not on Netflix for the same reason that it's not on here. They haven't been able to negotiate the rights to put, you know, the full run on yet because you, you're not, it might be on CBS, but you have to deal with everyone involved. You have to deal with the studios and everyone who's involved, not just the network. So, but I, but I think this is a great thing that's starting. I'm really excited about that. One last thing before we leave this topic though, Matthew, the other thing that was mentioned in our discussion group is that do you think that the next Star Trek series would be produced by CBS and made available only on CBS All Access? Hmm. Well, right now, Chris, Star Wars Rebels is on XD, Disney XD. And if you have a, a you know, a cable outlet that has that, that but the problem is with that show you you have uh, of cable has the Disney channel, Mm -hmm. and only about 60% of cable has XD with it. Oh, really? Yeah. Because the cable in Japan, I think all of the cable services in Japan have Disney XD. So, and and so, like, things like DirecTV, they don't actually have Uh uh, uh, XD. Yeah. So, um, what they've done is, is they've done this thing where you can... You can log in on the app or on your computer, and as long as you have a valid login from cable company, you could watch right, right. the episodes beforehand. So, like, I've already seen the episode that will play tomorrow night because I watched it because I have cable. 
And so allowing people to to have that kind of access, I could see uh, CBS doing the same thing with the new Star Trek series, allowing fans to have early access as long as okay, they so can. Early ha- access, exactly. not limited access. Right. I, I don't think, um, because I think they would be shooting themselves in the foot by yeah, not trying to get as many people to watch the new Star Trek series as possible. And I mean, just imagine this. Okay, so CBS is, is about to have uh, a show like they've never had before in Supergirl. Why uh, wouldn't you p- pair that with a brand new Star Trek series as well? And that's mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. dynamite Friday night right there for you on CBS. You know, it, it's sci-fi Friday night on CBS. It's completely new. And I think you'd have a lot of fans that will watch that. Um, and so... But I like that returning. It's like going back to the 60s Star Trek on Friday night. Exactly. But I, and I think it would work because, you know, even if people... Um, nowadays, studios are taking into account DVR numbers, too. So even if people are DVRing it and watching it Saturday morning, you know, when they get up late, you know, you're still getting people watching your show. And so I could totally see that happening. And, and I, I think we all agree, you know, Star Trek belongs on TV. And, yeah, and maybe in some way, who knows, maybe CBS All Access will kind of spur that, you know, into action again. Um, could be. It could spur them to make a series, right? Right. Yeah. So. so my hope is that it wouldn't be available only on CBS All Access. Um, and yes, we all agree that Star Trek belongs on TV not in the theater, but I would also say that it belongs in syndication, not on a network. So not on CBS proper. I I, I just think Star Trek is the type of, of franchise that needs to have more uh, wiggle room in production to not be so... You look at TNG, you look at DS9, and then you look at Voyager and Enterprise, and you can clearly see the difference in how a network affects the show versus it having more freedom, more creative freedom. So, all right, well, we'll see. So that, that's what we have to say about this right now. I love the idea of CBS All Access. I love what it's going to probably do to the cable industry to liberate content consumption for everyone. The service itself right now, not so compelling to me, but... I don't think that we're going to see CBS pull Star Trek from Netflix and other places. I think this is just going to be an additional uh, place where you can get it. All right. So, Matthew, we have a couple of quick little notes here for everyone. This was something that was sent to us by Darren Jameson, who runs a blog called Star Trek Blog. So, very descriptive you know exactly what they're going to be talking about there. But Darren has a petition set up to try to bring people to Destination Star Trek London 2016. And specifically, they're trying to bring the heads of the art departments from the series, so the creatives behind the scenes, and have them be guests at the next Destination Star Trek London. Because I guess the organizers are maybe more focused on the actors and less focused on the behind the scenes people than uh, maybe what you see at Star Trek Las Vegas, where you do see all these creatives there. Well, Chris, I think anybody who's seen the Blu-rays for either TNG or Enterprise or the original series, 
And uh, obviously, if you've been listening to Trek FM and you've heard these wonderful people on our shows as well, um, you know, especially like Doug Drexler, you know how dynamite these guys are in listening to them. I mean, I could listen to Mike and Denise Okuda talk about their work on Star Trek for hours and hours and hours because they just have more information than you could fit into volumes and volumes of books on this subject. They've tried. They I, yeah, exactly. Um, Doug is the exact same way. John Eaves and his his amazing artwork, the the incredible design for the Enterprise E, one of the most beautiful enterprises that's out there. Um, you know, all of these guys, Rick Steinbach. You know, I mean, this is the kind of stuff. Andrew Probert, who who just helped create the brand new Deep Space Nine that we see on our books. I mean, gosh, mm-hmm. you even got stuff to talk about that they're still doing for Star Trek. You know, these guys, I think, have an understanding of Star Trek to its very core um, because design was such an important part of the show and obviously has really helped, you know, encourage people in actual scientific communities to create some of the technology we have today. I mean, yeah. I, for the for the love of all that's holy, iPads. I mean, we have those things that they created on Star Trek The Next Generation all those well, years ago. We we were the pads on TNG, sure, but we mentioned earlier, Matthew, you mentioned the catwalk, and I just watched that recently. And when Archer and Topol are holding those pads, those really are like iPads. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they looked even more like kind of like a Kindle, um, yeah, iPad like thing, you know, it it's it's yeah. it's fantastic. I really do. I just love it. Yeah. So if you are in the UK and you want to see these people at Destination Star Trek London 2016, or even if you're in the States or elsewhere in the world and you just want to help your Star Trek brethren who are in the UK, go sign this petition. The people that are listed right now are Doug Drexler. Dorothy Duder, Michael Okuda, Denise Okuda, Rick Sternbach, John Eves, Douglas E. Graves, and Andrew Probert. And you can find this on Facebook, facebook.com slash Star Trek blog, and also Star Trek blog.wordpress.com. Those are the two different websites there. And we'll put a link in the show notes as well. But go over and sign this petition and help them out because although I will not be at Destination Star Trek London in 2016, I would love for all of our listeners there in the UK to be able to meet all these creatives in person. So anything we can do to help make that happen would be wonderful. Matthew, the other quick note here is uh, Larry, now that Larry's nonstop convention circuit has ended here. We're going into autumn. He has a little bit more breathing room. He has opened up the Trekland trunk once again. It's now overflowing with treasures. And if you go to his Facebook page, it's facebook.com slash pages slash the Trekland trunk with hyphens in between there. Or just just go to Facebook and type Trekland trunk, T-R-U-N-K into the search field and it'll come up you can see where he's just putting new stuff on there all the time. And I pulled out, Matthew, a couple of his posts recently just to give people an idea of the kinds of things he's putting out there and what he's telling everyone. Why don't you share a couple of those with everyone? Yeah, Chris, um, he just reopened. uh, He said this amazing box with goodies, uh, not scripts, not plans, um, but rare wearables and set doodads. 
Now, now, Chris, I, I don't know about you, but the idea of set doodads, that's exciting to me. Um, I, I mean, uh, I, I, I thought maybe he was going to go as far as thingamabobs, but <laughs> goodness, doodads, I'm excited. Well, I was going to say now, I, this is not from craft service. Th- these are not the snack food doodads that have been sitting around for the last 20 <laughs> years in a baggie or anything. Whew, that's a good they, thing. They, these are actually like little things from around the set, actual objects here. Uh, so thingamabobs, thingamajiggers, whatever it is that he has there in the Trekland trunk, they can be yours. He says, no one in the public has ever seen these things. So th- that's that has me intrigued to know what he's going to pull out of there. Uh, another one he says, really, guys, you, you, you can totally hear Larry's voice here, right? Really, guys, you tell me if you've ever seen anything like this in real-world non-commercial Studio Trek collectibles, awesomely rare pre-Digi-1993 Star Trek TOS studio licensing sales kit case and art contents. See, Chris, now that that is kind of exciting. I'm wondering what this would even look like you know you, you you know back in the day like way back in the day you'd go to the movies and they would give you like a program and it it would have all this information about the movie in fact they even had one for star wars back yeah, in 1977 we, we still have them in japan yeah fantastic we, we get them yeah yeah we don't get those things here they don't they don't do that <laughs> they just charge us you know 12 dollars for a movie and and 15 dollars for popcorn so Twelve dollars. Wow, Matthew. What well, it, it depends. Gosh. Yeah, it depends on here where you like, are. So. Here it's like twenty-five at, uh, on the low end. So, jeez. Uh, <laughs> so this would be so cool to get. You know, a, a licensing sales kit with with the contents yeah. of like the artwork they would have for. I mean, for for TOS uh, information. I just yeah. that would be so cool to get your hands on that. So go check it out. You can see what it looks like if you go over to Facebook. Go to the Trekland trunk. And the Trekland trunk is, it's kind of like a low-key auction. You know, it's not like a real flashy, pushy thing, anything like that. Larry will just put out things that he finds that he is going to put up for bidding. And people just bid on them and you win and you get the item. So he has all kinds of very cool stuff that you would never think of and that you'll never find in stores. So go check that out and uh, see what he has there for you. So, Matthew, this show is coming out right before Halloween, and although we did Cat's Paw on a recent episode of The Ready Room as a full discussion, I thought it would be fun here, since it is Halloween week, to talk about spooky episodes from Star Trek to help people pick a few things they might want to watch on Halloween night. And this is something that we do uh, usually every year a little bit. I've written an article about this, and in fact... I have an audio version of an article I wrote in the past, which I just put into the master feed this morning, special for this week, and so people can listen to that as well. But let's talk about just a few of these here, and maybe some that aren't on my list in the article that I wrote. So first off, Matthew, what's your first go-to episode when Halloween rolls around? Well, Chris, I just got to say, I'm surprised it's not on the list uh, here at all, but... uh... Why isn't the naked now on this list? I mean, it is so scary bad that, uh, you know, talk about Halloween episodes. If you just want to be scared to death, uh, it, it'll 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 knock your socks off. So I'm just really sad that and, and well, apparently and, and, it knocked Sulu's shirt off. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, and and uh, then you, 
you have the naked time. So, uh, you know, that's... Oh, yeah, I was thinking of the naked time, yeah. Yeah, that's just as bad as well. But, of course, uh, they're connected because it's yeah, the same yeah, disease. That's exactly. The crew, so. uh, but, yeah, yeah, the naked now, you know, on, on the next generation, just goodness. Um, we should... It, that should be, like, the <laughs> Halloween costume. You're the frozen people on the Tsiolkovsky. Oh, yeah, there you yeah. go. That would be great. Or, or you know, um, maybe... Uh, Maybe somebody could dress up like Yar and have that really like slicked back hair with the curl. Yeah. It's like a yeah. bad Superman impersonation. See, and maybe that's someone just could scary. be Data and just walk around the neighborhood telling people, you know, I am fully functional until the police come and take them away. <laughs> exactly what would happen. See what I'm saying? So scary. Why isn't this on the list? <laughs> Oh, goodness. Actually, you know, to me, I think one of the scariest episodes ever done was The Thaw. Because I don't like clowns. Creepy, right? Yes. That super creepy clown-like thing in Voyager, it just just bothered me. So I don't like that episode at at all. Um, It just, it's not my thing. That or the, the, I always think of the shoot as well with Voyager. Um, really See, the creepy, scary. Is, the shoot is the one Star Trek episode that I still really don't like, and okay. I won't watch. Okay. Yeah, I've never. I've warmed most of the episodes that I didn't like so much when they first came on. I've warmed up to them over the mm-hmm. years, but the shoot is one that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I don't really like it either. And and part of it is just it's just like uh, creepy, weird. I just don't enjoy it. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Well, you know, for me, Cat's Paw is my go-to. That's just kind of my tradition. Yeah. Like, I have to watch Cat's Paw. But beyond that, uh, I'm with you on the thaw because it's so creepy. I think Schisms is a great creepy episode mm-hmm. for a Halloween night. And one that I haven't talked about so much in the past, and it's not on my list in the article that I wrote and that I narrated, is Vanishing Point from Enterprise where Hoshi thinks that no one can see her. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting episode and a good thought. I mean, because uh, the the idea that you could just all of a sudden, uh, you know, disappear and people it's like can't you didn't see exist, you. Right? right, exactly. But you're still there. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I I think that is a really scary thought as well. Um, you know, for me, uh, it it doesn't get much scarier and, and creepier than um, Doctor Crusher. With a candle and sub rosa. <laughs> so Matthew, I, I have a feeling if there was an episode with Dr. Crusher walking around in a nightgown in a dimly lit room, I think that you're gonna watch that no matter how bad the story is or what anyone thinks about that episode. Right. It's it's possible, but it's still scary bad. Oh my gosh. Just <laughs> terrible. Um, but it is a ghost story. It so is it's appropriate it is. for Halloween. It is a ghost story, and it's it is very appropriate for Halloween. Um, now, if you really want to, I think watch a scarier, creepier episode. Genesis from TNG is just yeah. like super creepy with all the the regenerate. I mean, the yeah, I guess it's almost like regeneration that people well, do. They're like de-evolving. they're de-evolving. Yeah, and but they're so, de-evolving into it, creatures that they could not possibly have evolved from in the first exactly, place. Exactly, which is really creepy and scary. So, yeah. um, and the fact that like like Troy in the bathtub there, it's just like it's just super creepy. Uh, and the makeup in there in that episode is fantastic. You know, they do such a great job. Well, you know, that's a scary episode for your pets, also. 
because <laughs> Spot gets a sex change operation in that episode. Yeah, it. Who? I mean, that could happen. You never know on it. Anything and can spontaneously too. That's what's yeah. so scary. Like your dog is watching Star Trek with you, and your dog is having nightmares for the next few days, worried that it's going to wake up and be the opposite gender. Yeah, uh, I feel. Yeah, gotta remember to keep the any animals away while I'm watching Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> So those are a few, of course, Impulse. If you like zombies, you need to watch Impulse on Enterprise. You've got Vulcan zombies. And DS9 is a harder one for me to come up with them. The the main one that I generally think of is Impak Noor because Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. like they're in a haunted house. Yeah, and it is actually very scary. Uh, They do a great job of of playing that up. And so that is a fantastic... uh, quote-unquote Halloween episode you know the other one that I think of Chris is um and that I I, forgive me all fans but right now the title is escaping me uh but super creepy is when they go back to Impaknor with the Paw Wraith cult with Goldacott and Kira and just the warped nature of everything that's happening in that episode that's creepy to me like super creepy and scary so Impaknor is the ultimate space haunted house. It really is. Uh, and, you know, when it's haunted by Goldacott pretending to be, uh, you know, some sort of religious figure, that might be scarier than just regular Impaknor, the haunted house. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. So those are a few. We have a, a long list of other ones. So go check out the audio version of the article if you like. Look in the master feed. It's Captain's Log 14 Spook Treks, and you can also find it in the main Captain's Log feed. If you're subscribed to that, you'll just need to go back to episode 14 and pull that up. And there's a long list there of things that you can watch on Halloween night to get into a spooky mood and still get your Star Trek fix as well. Well, Matthew, that is all we have in news. We're going to jump into the feature now where we're joined by Jamie Sanchez and Jeremy Reed to talk about what I know is one of our favorite DS9 episodes in the pale moonlight. Before we do that, though, we'd like to tell everyone about our sponsor for today's show, audible.com. Every week we recommend a book because as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible if you go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm. And Matthew, what I wanted to recommend today is it's kind of a heads up for all of our listeners, actually, and that's Mosaic by Jerry Taylor. We've recommended Mosaic before, but we're going to be doing it on Literary Treks in a few weeks. And so this would be a great way for everyone to brush up on Mosaic or hear it for the first time to get ready for that show. Definitely the thing to do, Chris. Um, You know, I'm excited to go back to this book. It's one I have read really since it came out. I remember the excitement for it when it came out, you know, being written by somebody on the show. It's the first time Mm -hmm. that really happened since, you know, Gene Roddenberry had done the, uh, the, the, the novelization format for the motion picture. And, uh, so I'm, I'm very excited to, to pick this back up again and, and dive into it as uh, we'll be talking about it uh, with uh, Charlene from uh, To the Journey on Literary Tracks. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've been rereading it again myself here the past couple of days now that I can see the text again. And I've been enjoying it too. I read it in hardcover back when it came out and haven't read it since. 
although I think I've listened to it since, but that's been quite a while. But you can listen to it as well, absolutely free, just for trying Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm, pick up Mosaic, or pick up any other book that you like instead. If you decide not to stick with Audible, you'll get to keep that book, so there's nothing to lose. But when you try Audible, it really helps us keep the ready room coming to you each week. Again, audibletrial.com slash trekafilm is the URL, and we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. Star Trek fans often question Sisko's methods. As Starfleet captains go, at least those we saw as leads, Sisko is perhaps the least likely to do things by the book. One act that is cited most often is Sisko's decision to bring the Romulans into the Dominion War, the deceptions he concocted together with Garrick, and the fact that, in the end, he was okay with it. In the Pale Moonlight is frequently praised as one of the best episodes of not only DS9 but of Star Trek, Yet there are also those who see it as a betrayal of Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. And today we're going to talk about this episode. And to help us do that, we're joined once again by Star Trek Phase 2's Fezzelopedia, Jamie Sanchez. Jamie, welcome back. Thanks, Chris, for having me. And we welcome to the Ready Room for the very first time, host of the Star Trek Wars podcast, Jeremy Reed. Jeremy, welcome. Peldor joy to everyone. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. I know that you are a Niner, so I felt that if I'm going to bring you on the ready room, it needs to be DS9 week. Oh, I'm so ready to get into this. So we're going to talk about In the Pale Moonlight. Matthew, I I know for you and me, this is definitely one of our favorite episodes. Before we jump into it, though, a quick synopsis for those who haven't seen this episode or haven't seen it in a while. Sisko sits down to record a log, and we find out that he has decided, after more and more casualty reports keep pouring in from the war, and Beta Zed has fallen to the Dominion, that he must bring the Romulans into the war. But of course he knows that he can't do this through normal Starfleet methods, so he employs the help of Garrick, and they concoct a plan to bring the Romulans into the war by at least as far as Cisco thinks, trying to convince Senator Vrenak that the Dominion is planning to invade Romulan space and Romulus. But of course, Garrick has his own plans. Things play out in the end. Vrenak is killed, and Cisco decides that he's okay with what they did. That's just a quick summary of what happened. So let's get into initial thoughts here. And Jeremy... Tell yes, me, sir. as a Niner, I, I'm pretty sure you love this episode. I didn't ask you ahead of time, so I hope you do. What are your initial thoughts on In the Pale Moonlight? As a matter of fact, I do love this episode. Uh, uh, just a little background. I watched every single episode of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine live as they aired. And there's still a handful of episodes that I vividly remember watching live. Uh, In the Pale Moonlight was definitely one of them. 
it's just one of those episodes that immediately after seeing it for the first time, you know that this is going to be an episode that's going to be talked about maybe forever. This changed the landscape of Trek and blurred the lines of right and wrong in a way that had never really been done before or after. Uh, I think that when discussing the greatest and most pivotal episodes in all of Star Trek, you have to include this episode in the top 10. Uh, so, yeah, I love this episode. And that's not even including the fact that we get Trek's greatest meme, the side of Picard's face palm. It's a fake. <laughs> it's a fake. Yes. And then we get it's a cake and <laughs> everything else online, right? <laughs> Remember, people, it is a good day for pie. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> well, Jamie, what about you? What are your initial thoughts on In the Pale Moonlight? Not being a Niner originally, I don't remember seeing it in first run. I was pretty young when it came out. And by that point, I was just strictly watching Voyager. Um, but as I've grown up and I've watched everything from original series through Voyager... And now I'm starting my Enterprise watch. Uh, I have to agree with Jeremy. It's one of the best. I, I'm not even going to say top 10. It's probably top five Star Trek episodes. Wow. Mm. Because of things that we'll get get into later on in the podcast. But I think it holds true to the original concept of Star Trek. Okay. Oh, that's going to be a great discussion then. Because that's what a lot of fans feel it fails to do which I don't agree with, but that'll be interesting to talk about. So Matthew, you and I just did a commentary on this a few months back on the orb. So it still feels pretty fresh in my mind. And actually, when I went through the list, because we keep a list of every topic, of course, that we've covered on the Ready Room, I was surprised that this was not in the list and that we had not covered it here before. So tell, tell us what your thoughts are on In the Pale Moonlight. I, I couldn't believe it either, Chris, uh, when we were looking at the list and, and that we hadn't done this episode of The Ready Room. It, it kind of shocked me because, uh, you know, this is one of those episodes that's kind of perfect for The Ready Room, getting together and, and talking about, uh, you know, the, the nitty gritty of a, an episode. And You know what, Matthew? I think we did do it before. I remember now, but we erased all the files afterwards. That that makes sense. Uh, yeah, um, we had the computers just erase the log completely. So, yeah. well, it's funny because that? yeah, I I was I okay with it. it. I just I said audition. I don't think it was our best file. material. Really, that's yeah. probably what it was. But I mean, so on the other side of the room and the other side of the room. Wait, I guess on the other side of that, we were talking on iMessage, and I I, I mentioned to you, I think I've probably seen this episode more than any other Star Trek episode, mm-hmm. and for me, it's because. I think it's arguably the best Star Trek episode ever. And and, and just because for, for me, and, and that's just my personal opinion, it, it's the one that has the most value as you're watching it over and over again because mm-hmm. you're always having to grapple with the issues in the episode. And, you know, today they're ever as present as they were and maybe even more so back then. So I think that this is one of those episodes that will continue to be something that you could talk about and talk over because the the unfortunately the relevancy of the issues is always going to be there um and uh, that's one of the things that i think makes deep space nine just a standout in the series now um when you look at you know the entire star trek saga is that uh when you watch through deep space nine you find it's it's ever relevant 
Um, they're dealing with issues that we're we're dealing with today, even more so than when the first show first aired. So I think that's mm-hmm. fantastic. And and I um, every time I watch this episode, I'm I'm just struck by uh, everything about it. You know, it's got great acting. I think this setup and everything really fits um, Cisco uh, and and the the acting style of Avery Brooks um, and and I. Terry Farrell is fantastic in this episode. You know, when she's playing the Romulan, she does such a good job. I was thinking to myself, wow, maybe they miscast her. Maybe she should have been playing a Rom- She does the best Romulan, you know, yeah. any character. Well, Cisco tells her yeah. you would have made a great Romulan. So, <laughs> so it's it's, it's, on it too. it's great. Ever. <laughs> well, Matthew, go ahead and carry us over into the first topic here, the framework of the episode. This episode uses a log recording as the framework, which is fairly unique. I'm trying to think if it's ever been done in Star Trek elsewhere. I mean, we get we get cases where people are telling a story like this, but this one for me stands out because it really is, you're just getting into Cisco's head here. You're seeing everything happen, but it's really just him sitting there having a drink, trying to come to terms with what he's done. So what do you think about the framework of this episode? Well, what I love about it is that it really does kind of set up the one-man play aspect, you know, where that there is just one person on one soundstage telling you a story. And, uh, again, I think that this really just fit Avery Brooks and his his theatrical style so well because he knows how to play to Mm. the audience, you know, and, 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 you know, this is so great because he actually gets to look in the camera at you you know, and you get to feel everything that he's feeling is, is Cisco ruminating about this decision that he's had to make. Do you ever and, feel and, like he might punch you in the face if this had been in 3D? Yes, I actually do think of 3D, he might get punched <laughs> in the face. Or he might he might feel when he punches, you know, uh, Garrick yeah. even more so. Uh, so because those are, those are some <laughs> intense punches. I mean, he's not holding back at all. But yeah. I, I love the I, I, I think the framework here is, is the thing that really sets this up because Cisco is being so honest. You know, he's not holding anything back. He's he's not sugarcoating anything. He's he's giving his personal log and it allows him to tell the story in a way that um, you get to see him really wrestling with with all the issues and i can't imagine the story not being framed like this because i don't feel like it would work as well um Mm -hmm. because there's a rawness to what's happening i really think it helps you question as the person watching it the the morality of the situation because you're seeing cisco wrestle with the morality of it and and not necessarily he says he can live with it at the end but we know that he he's having a hard time doing that. And uh, I, I think all this together, I mean, if you pull that out and it's just an episode, I don't think it's as powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, I think the framework is awful and I'll tell you why. I, I wish I could take an opposite stance like that, but <laughs> this episode's just too good. Uh, yeah. The framework is brilliant. Not only does it give you a unique and uh, interesting way to tell a story, but it also gives the viewer direct access into Cisco's mind frame and psyche. It just makes the episode more personal. You're not mm-hmm. just watching the action unfold. You're listening to Cisco tell you himself uh, what happened and why. Uh, just from the second the episode starts and you see this different framework, you know 
that you're in for something different and that this episode immediately is demanding your attention. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if it were told, if it weren't told this way, if it were just in a normal episode, part of what we see in Cisco where you can tell that he's visibly very uncomfortable with what's going on, maybe wouldn't come through as much because he, I guess one question is, let's say he's walking through the corridors and you see, and he comes up to Garrick and, and you see these expressions on his face. That's his memory of how he felt about what he was doing. Whereas that may not actually be how he appeared to everyone else as those events were happening, because he's probably maintaining more of the Starfleet captain demeanor, trying to keep things under wrap. So in a way we are seeing a different angle of the events than what everyone else on the station saw as they were really unfolding. Yeah, it'd be a completely different episode from that view. Mm -hmm. It'd be an interesting one, but not as effective, I don't think. But not as memorable, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, we've got uh, we've got several instances where we've had flashbacks, but this is the only case where we're getting it in a log form. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is special. But what makes it even more special to me and more memorable is that it feels like it's like you're having this conversation with Cisco, where he's telling you a story and you're his close friend. And it, it, it's more intimate, where you're getting his thoughts and feelings, and you're even getting, in the visual aspect, not necessarily the actual perspective, but his feeling on what he was doing as he was doing it. Yeah. So that's that's completely unique to this particular episode. And I guess DS9 as a whole because I think that we've 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 gotten all these shades of gray in Deep Space 9. And if I go back to, you know, TNG TNG is always hey, bright right, 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 where mm -hmm. nothing ever bad happens here. And if it does, we resolve it by the end of the episode. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You're talking about the, the log form. One thing, Jamie, because you're dealing with the original series all the time with Phase 2, people like to joke, and we joke as well, that Kirk and Spock especially, they can record a log entry from anywhere. You know, they could be <laughs> oh, pinned yeah. to the ground with a spear in their neck and they're recording a log entry. But the way I look at that is that, in a way, a lot of TOS is this style, where they're telling you after the fact what happened. And these log entries are actually them carrying you through the story, which is why they can record a log entry in a situation where it makes no sense that they would be recording a log entry. Well, I believe the way I've read in the production notes for the original series is that they were made specifically for, you know, if you if you ever notice, they're right after commercial breaks for people who, you know, not are, always haven't no. not always <laughs> not always, yeah. but it's been the case that for most of the times that that they come up after commercial breaks, yeah, give you a little sure, and that was carried through to TNG a bit as well, but but there are those moments where they're recording logs in the middle of an act, not after a commercial break, and it's a situation where they couldn't possibly be recording it. So in that sense, it feels kind of like this, where Cisco is telling you something that happened two weeks ago, and he's just mm -hmm. taking you through it at this point. I think mm -hmm. one of the 
the other interesting things about the episode too is because he's doing the log and he's by himself and he's in his quarters, you know, as he's telling you the story visually, they're having him kind of, you know, he takes off his jacket, you know, and, 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 uh, then, you know, he, that you get to I'm glad the, the story wasn't too long right well no but down. i mean it, it's it's a really important visual is that he's kind of like stripping off you know the uniform yeah. and, and giving you the truth you know of, right. of what's happening and 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 so it all just re- works really well together to to give you that feeling that this is a guy who's trying to get to the bottom of the truth even for himself of everything mm-hmm. that's happened and trying to make sense of it and everything that they're doing the the you know the visual aspect of the episode is working to to push forward that story uh of, of cisco you know wrestling and i i really like that again i think it it's what really sets this apart and because i think this is such a pivotal episode of star trek it's important for that to have happened you know um and i, I think it 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 makes it very memorable um, because it's one of those episodes, obviously, that's going to be talked about ad mm-hmm. nauseum for a very long time because of, of what's happened in the episode. And so it's great to see them really putting that um, th- theatricality back into the, mm-hmm. this episode. You know, uh, Star Trek is, is very Shakespearean and, and very much a lot of times like a play in the first place. This one has all of those um, things going for it, and they're using all of that to their benefit here to really tell you a, a, a very moving and important story in, in the Star Trek history. Well, it also shows the isolation of the captain, which we don't always see so much. You know, he's having to deal with this on his own. He's not going to anyone else. He he. It's really something that he can't tell people about, and we, we get that feeling sometimes about, you know, how the captain is isolated. But that is something else that we see in this episode as well, that or in this framework. I, I was just thinking it's a good thing that Jake was away because I can't see him <laughs> sitting across from Jake just telling Jake what happened. That wouldn't have worked as well. <laughs> yeah, and it's crazy if Renex shuttle would have been delayed and exploding another few hours, you may have seen Cisco toasting with that scotch uh, topless. That would have been a very right. That's why I said it's a good thing it wasn't right. a long story. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny down. too uh, uh, if you've seen the original draft or the, the idea of this episode was a very Jake centric story, and then he ended up getting cut, cut out of it completely. Mm-hmm. This was more of a like a, a Watergate where he was going to uncover a. Uh, I think it was Shakar. Was it Shakar? Um, some secret in Shakar. Then they changed it to. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, him uncovering that, yeah. Uh, Cisco, and but they didn't like the 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 stake between the father and son. So mm-hmm. Jake goes from the main character in the episode to not appearing in the episode. It's funny you should mention the draft because I remember reading about a scene where Jadzia is saying we should bring the Romulans into the war, and you know bring them into the war by any means necessary and Cisco's reaction is how did you know that I was playing that and and just in in the the directions on the page not necessarily in dialogue and that that's just yeah well I, I'm glad they I cut think, that Cisco double take out though what what <laughs> the one they didn't cut out though which I wish that had been played slightly differently is when Renak says it's a fake and Cisco looks like, you know, he just got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Ooh. I wish Cisco had 
played it a little bit more. I wish Avery Brooks had played it a bit more like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's a real ride. <laughs> yeah, right the there. cat was yeah. out of the bag on that one. No poker yeah. face for Cisco. <laughs> but then again, like like I said earlier, what we are seeing in the episode is Cisco's own feelings about what happened during these events. It could be that Cisco did play it straight in reality when the mm. events were happening, and we're just seeing how Cisco felt about it himself with that facial expression. Uh, about the the story drafts here, though, I just want to mention, Matthew, you talked about how, you know, Cisco is taking off his jacket and he's peeling down to get to the truth about things. I think this is the same thing in the writing process. And one thing that's so great about the DS9 writers is that they have all these ideas, but they're just tossing things out. They're peeling things off until they get down to the core of what makes the story work. And then we end up with this, which is so much simpler than what the original concept was. The only thing yeah. I think is uh, worse off than the original script, I think this is a better story. I do like the original name, the title of this episode, more than In the Pale Moonlight. And that was Patriot. Really? Yeah. Mm, not me. I think In the Pale Moonlight is is a perfect one here. Patriot, I don't know, it's too... It's I understand so the purpose of the title, of meanings, but... but mm. What he has to do for his... For what he believes yeah, but it in doesn't, his cause... But it paints it in a completely different way. You know, in the pale moonlight, Cisco understands that what he did, he had to do, but he compromised a little bit of his own values in order to do it. And he has to to walk in that murky world in order to do it. Patriot implies, to me anyway, that everything he did, it was right. Like, this is what you have to do because you're doing it for the state. Mm. And so that's just more that's, of ironic. It reminds Patriot. me, honestly, of, mm. of uh, and this is going to sound funny, but it reminds me of in, in uh, Tim Burton's Batman when the Joker says, you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? Well, I, I think that's where the title comes from, actually. Yeah. This is exactly what they're referencing. And, and obviously, yeah. you know, it uh, the road to hell is paved with good intention. So all of these cliches are kind of playing into this episode of 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 uh, you know Cisco having to deal with this this uh, huge weight of doing the right thing for the right reason, but it's also the wrong thing all at the same time according to his his moral stance on on life and and yeah. you know um, they came this close to so, naming the episode. Where does he get all those wonderful toys? <laughs> well, I like the other alternate title, The Man Who Killed Renak Valance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Brought to you by Romulan Caulifal. It's a fake. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's from Velveeta. <laughs> it's a fake. This is not real cheese. All right. So, well, let's go on and talk about the actions a little bit more here. I, I, the majority of fans, I feel like, do like this episode, and they see that you know the struggles that Cisco goes through here. But we do hear from those fans who really hate this episode because they believe that it bastardizes Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Jamie, you said at the beginning that you felt very true to Star Trek. And I see ways that that is the case as well. But tell us why you feel that way. I, I feel that way because Next Generation, which was deep with Gene Roddenberry's 
supposed vision that everybody seems to think it is. That was Star Trek Light. That was start. The original series was based upon character-driven stories and having dilemmas for us to solve, whether it's pitted Kirk against Spock or McCoy and Spock. It's always a, a struggle. And with Next Generation and to a certain extent Voyager, you got, hey, we're all friends. We we don't have any problems. The problems come to us. And in Deep Space Nine, where, you know, Ron Moore and Iron Stephen Bear had the authority to create story arcs and and have conflict with the the main characters, which you don't you don't get with Next Generation or Voyager. That that to me is what Star Trek is. It's the the dilemmas to drive the story. Not necessarily the whole utopian future, which I would hope that is up for us in the future, but right. I don't see that as as our future because we're a a, a, a crisis driven race. If there isn't a crisis, there's no will, there's no drive to strive to be better than it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What about you, Jeremy? You're on your show right now. You talk about both TOS and DS9 each week. So you're kind of comparing them all the time. How do you yeah. feel this How do you feel this story in particular compares to the original ideals of Star Trek and not the kind of squeaky clean everyone gets along all the time that we got in the next generation. Right. And, and uh, you know, there's a, a lot to be said that from what watching all the five of these, uh, these shows each week, the deep space nine is closer to the original series than any other Star Trek show in terms of ideals and yeah, conflict. There is conflict in the original series. Uh, and being a niner, Cisco, obviously he is my favorite captain, but uh, Picard's a close second. And you do see a, a lot of haters out there and they always attack Cisco for, oh, he's just, he's a rogue. He's a vigilante. He acts on emotions. He just does what he wants. He doesn't care. Uh, and that is just completely not true. Uh, they say that for the episode for the uniform. And then they also mostly say it for in the pale moonlight. Uh, but yeah. what a lot of people don't realize or fail to realize is that this is a plan that's sanctioned by Starfleet. It's Cisco's plan. But it is sanctioned by Starfleet, and now of course the the killing of Renak isn't sanctioned by Starfleet. But Cisco <laughs> didn't know that that was Derek's know. plan in the yeah. first place. So, yeah, it's it's a it's his idea, but to bring the Romulans into the war. But really, no other captain in the history of Star Trek has had to face the hardships of a multi-year war with the hundreds of thousands of casualties, and mm -hmm. a lot of this is on Cisco's shoulders time and, and time being on again. the front line pretty much too he's on the, the front line world. um yeah. he's asked to do so much and you know people say the actions that cisco takes in this episode go against everything that ron buried envisioned but i'd argue that the actions that cisco takes in this episode are the shining examples of just how far mankind has come and this man gives his self-respect a piece of his humanity uh, maybe even a piece of his soul just for the betterment of the entire alpha quadrant mm -hmm. This wasn't a selfish act. Without the help of the Romulans, the Dominion would have won the war. Uh, and yeah, I love Picard. I know many people see him as the shining example of humanity. But you have to keep in mind that because of people like Cisco, his actions allow people like Picard to go on silly diplomacy missions wearing a doily on his head 
and mm-hmm. not talking to Worf about his wife or his dead wife. <laughs> well, you know, a few years ago, Rod Roddenberry and I were talking about this very similar topic, Cisco and Picard, on an episode of Matterstream. And what I said then, which is how I feel, and I think what you're describing is that Picard is the man that we strive to be and Cisco is the man that we are. Yeah, that's really good. And I think this it's one of those things, watching through the episode here, you can see that Cisco is, is, is having to deal with... Um, the, the realities of, of what it means to, to be at war. Um, and I, I was just thinking, you know, we were having a discussion. Okay, so basically would TOS characters agree with this decision that Cisco makes here? And I, all I can think is, and I can all I can hear in my mind is Spock saying the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And that this is one of those times where uh, uh, even a Vulcan might say that, that you know, this plan is is not perfect but do are you going to sacrifice the entire alpha quadrant for you know your your pride you know your your um your morality uh in in a time of war is is uh, garrick even says at the end the the life of one romulan senator one criminal and the self-respect of a starfleet officer isn't that worth you know um what ends up happening and and I, I, I think that what I loved about TOS is it made it us ask those really tough questions in its best episodes. And, and Deep Space Nine here is asking us to do the same things in a way that really relates, especially, again, in, in our, our, our very world right now. And it doesn't come up with easy answers, you know. Um, uh, in Deep Space Nine even, I think, uh, so a lot of times gives us the opportunity to question things and it gives us even more gray than than uh the tos characters might end up with you know with kirk and and spock and mccoy they, they might come up with a better solution sometimes or kirk might be able to you know uh kirk his way out of something you know mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but uh i actually I just, that's I, what i wanted to ask you matthew because i said up front that cisco's one of the captains, he's probably, to me, the captain that's the most likely to not do things by the book. And you just said Kirk is way out of something. Do, do you, Who do you see as being more likely to go his own way, disregard orders, throw away the book, Kirk or Cisco? It's funny because I, I think they're kind of tied. Maybe, you know, this sounds like it would be a great article for somebody to write, you know, and, and go through the mm-hmm. episodes. And, and uh, when when is it that Kirk goes against orders and and how many how many times does that actually happen and uh, how many times does cisco do that and you know when i think through it i i honestly don't think of of too many times that cisco is actually going against direct orders from starfleet kirk does that i think quite a few times you know not so much in cisco's case not so much going against orders directly but just because he's so far away from Starfleet Command, yeah, definitely. just doing his own thing and doing it in a way that if you if you kind of did an audit of his actions and you compared them to the guidelines of Starfleet, you would go, uh, that's questionable, that's questionable. You did what? That's questionable. The times that Cisco has actually gone against Starfleet would be like uh, an improbable cause. He went against the Starfleet order to rescue Odo. He took the Defiant... 
mm-hmm. and Eddington sabotaged them. Mm-hmm. And then you look at Kirk, who was also by the book, and the time that he went against Starfleet was to steal the Enterprise to do rescue Spock. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very similar. They break orders when it comes to their crew. Um, there's a reason why Kirk is Cisco's hero. They're very similar people, and I love them both. Yeah, they they really do. I think uh, I think that's one of the things you know. People don't think about Cisco mirroring Kirk the way that he really does, but he's on the the you, that to use a Star Wars term, the outer rim. You know, like he's he's on the final frontier, the edge of the final frontier there. And he's dealing with with situations, uh, you know, far away from from you know the homeland, um, and the same way Kirk was. So, you know, like he he's out there, he's having to make decisions because he doesn't have Starfleet backup. Uh, you know, every five seconds, like a Picard seems to in the TNG episodes. So uh, I do, I I think that this is a fantastic uh, episode that really does show um, the weight of what it means to be a Starfleet captain you know, boldly going. And, you know, Deep Space Nine gets a bad rap for not really boldly going a lot, but it really does in the terms of of what it means to be a human being, you know, wrestling with the realities of of existence in in a in a galaxy that doesn't believe or or support the same things that you believe and support. Um and, and trying to make that all work together as peacefully as possible and i mean i think the best part about this is cisco's goal is to stop this war as quickly as possible and his his goal also even even though uh his argument i I think to freenak like i you will suffer because we'll be gone and you'll be next like not only will we be wiped out, but you're going to get wiped out as well. So, I mean, he's even thinking about his enemies as much as he is, you know, himself in this episode. Very I think that's a him. really interesting thing to think about, it, uh, too. I mean, to bring up that Cisco's not just fighting for for the Federation, for the Klingons, for his allies. He's also fighting for everybody else in the Alpha Quadrant to have a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot of people in there that aren't friends of the Federation, but he feels like they should have, you know, a dominion-free existence. Um, and, you know, given the choice, I think everybody would like to have a dominion-free existence. <laughs> exactly. You know what, Matt? Piggybacking on what you said, I was thinking of uh, a Deep Space Nine episode, season two. I think it's either Maki part one or part two, where Cisco says, and this, like, epitomizes his Kirk-likeness. He goes... You know what the problem is? The problem is Earth. Mm-hmm. It's easy to be a saint in paradise, but these people do not live in paradise. Mm-hmm. And that just encapsulates Deep Space Nine in that TOS mold and sets that that series apart from Next Gen or Voyager. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. What about the Romulans here? Talking about them a little bit. How important is it that it's actually the Romulans that are involved in the story. How, how I think sometimes it's easy to forget that the Romulans have a non-aggression pact with the Dominion at this point. You know, they've been kind of helping the Federation a little bit. I mean, they gave the cloak for the Defiant. There was, of course, the failed invasion to try to destroy the Founders' homeworld. And now the, the Romulans are just off on the sideline here. Of course, they're 
one of the better known races in Star Trek that aren't really being utilized very much at this point. But how important is it that the Romulans specifically are brought into the war? Or does the story work if it's not the Romulans? Is there anyone else you could use even? I honestly don't think so because of the amount of history you have with the Romulans. Mm -hmm. It's always been the three major powers of the Alpha slash Beta Quadrant. Klingons, the Federation, and the Romulans. You have your lesser-known species like the Ferengi and the Tholians, for example, but you don't get as much time with them. If we had more time to build those races up, I would say, yeah, let's use one of them. But we've all it's all it's all centered around that triad of races. Mm -hmm. You know why the Romulans, why it's so important to have them in this war? Because that Romulan warbird is so damn beautiful <laughs> that we cannot leave that on the sideline during the Dominion War. That is true. It's such a beautiful ship. And the, the Romulan scout ship that Vreenek uses in this, I love that too. Everything in this is just perfectly Romulan. Uh, you mentioned before Jadzia. She, did a, she was a great Romulan. I think uh, Senator Vreenek, uh, Stephen McCady, I think he's the perfect encapsulation like both physically and mentally of what a like the quintessential Romulan should look like he's so pointy and sharp and he's the reason why we need Romulans in Deep Space Nine because Deep Space Nine does such a great job at writing all these races that mm -hmm. they did to the Bajorans the Cardassians the Klingons I, I was really hoping that they would bring the Romulans more in when we got that cloaking device instead of just having her around for the two-parter Mm -hmm. They're such a fascinating species. So I, I'm just glad that we got them eventually. Yeah, I think, Chris, you know, trying to think of other races, I mean, there's uh, the Kinshara, you know, some things out there that have always just been mentioned. Packlids. Uh, and, and, Benzites. And the, the, yeah. But you're, there's there's nobody else in the Alpha Quadrant who is as big a power as the Romulans right. that could actually yeah. have, a, a you know, an, an effect. But the other thing I think is that uh, as, as Jeremy was talking about, you know, it, Deep Space Nine bringing in the Romulans actually gives us some great Romulan episodes down mm -hmm. the line and some really fantastic insights into their culture that we haven't really had before. Um, and that's the other thing that I love, you know, and it's to me, I think it's an unfortunate nature of, of TNG of, of not allowing more exploration of TOS elements that we didn't get to see a lot of and mm -hmm. and Klingons they did that pretty well but and, and they they had a lot of Romulan stuff in there you know I think of with with uh Sela and all that but you never and Tomalak and all but you never felt like you were really getting to delve into the Romulans very right. much right except maybe like unification where they actually go to Romulus but outside exactly. of that yeah exactly and so this gives us an opportunity to explore them even more and and you know so thankful that they did because we'd get some great episodes out of out of those characters and and you know uh, I even think of you know having the Romulan presence there then on Deep Space Nine and, and the situations we get with Derna and and the the Romulans storing weapons on Derna instead of, a, you know, a medical facility and the, the whole showdown and just kind of 
building on their nature that they are pretty duplicitous in everything that they do. They're always mm-hmm. looking for their, the, you know, in the same ways the Ferengi are in, in some instances, looking for the, the best thing they can get out of a deal, you know, um, and I, it, it really adds, I think, to the layers that we're getting throughout these last few seasons of Deep Space Nine, five, six, and seven, that we're going to dive into the Star Trek universe. And, and what I loved, Deep Space Nine is the most central location, you know, series. Like, it, it all takes place on this station. And yet, they tell a galactic tale. And we learn probably more about all these different parts of, of the 24th century and its universe from a show where we don't travel anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just amazing, you know, that we're really getting a picture of what it's like to live in the 24th century on a show where we're not traveling anywhere, but most of the time, but people are traveling to us and this big war happens with us. And, you know, it it's just a, an awesome experience, uh, especially for anyone who's a, a fan of Star Trek and its universe, because DS9 is, I think, the show where we may learn the most about every bit of the 24th century universe yeah yeah, i agree you get those scenes of the romulans klingons and the federation in the same war room mm-hmm. on the same team planning and it's just priceless to have romulans and klingons in the same room that's what i was gonna say the same yeah. side of- yeah yeah the fact that the romulans and the klingons have to work together and then Worf, who we know going <laughs> all the way back into tng really hates the Romulans and to see him have to work together with the Romulans gives us opportunities to grow his character as well. Seeing them work together though, yeah, you're right, Jeremy, having them in the room together is always fascinating. Every Romulan zoo should have a pair. (laughs) And, you know, seeing, um, I, I think it also highlights again, these gray areas where even enemies have to work together from time to time for the greater good. Do you think Worf had a big enough journey that he would give a Romulan his blood at the end of Deep Space Nine? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. No. That's a question. That is one. Well, let's talk about the actual plan here and Cisco working together with Garrick. What I love about this is that Cisco from the very beginning has reservations about working with Garrick. I mean, this is something that he doesn't want to do. I think that he... I think he's fine with having Garrick around, but he's always very suspicious of Garrick and he utilizes him when he needs to have, he needs subterfuge. He knows that he's going to have to go into the very murky areas in order to get something done. There's no one you could go to that could pull that off better on the station anyway than Garrick. And Cisco believes that his cause is righteous, as he tells us here. He knows he cannot achieve this with the standard Starfleet approach. So he agrees to employ the help of a man who he knows is going to do some things that he's not going to be okay with, but he has to just do it. And then it all starts with him having to call up Galrein and get this weird guy out of prison to come over and you know the thing is and you might think that Cisco kind of really sunk to to low levels for a Starfleet captain here but let's remember Cisco could have had his own personal holodeck program with five Orion slave girls <laughs> in addition to bringing the Romulans into the war and he passed on that 
Well, you know, he is in a relationship with Cassidy at the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's probably staying away from the holodeck porn at that point. Uh, so good, good, good on him. It, it, talk about showing your character. I mean, uh, that's that's fantastic. What I love about the whole plan, Chris, is that it gives him the opportunity to tell Tolar they give him the Darth Vader speech, as we were talking about <laughs> on the other side of the room, of I'm altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any farther. And it just, but I think his is just as scary as Vader's because he's like, if there's just one flaw, I'll send you, I'll have Martex send you back to that Klingon prison and never let you out. And you're just like, I I believe him. Like, uh, I totally believe that he's... His time executing you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really scary. So. And then Cisco turns around and the cape swings and then he walks out the door. Exactly, exactly. Oh, man. It's the Cisco it's... equivalent of dropping the mic and walking out. <laughs> <laughs> Would be awesome to see Cisco just boom. Cisco, oh, release him as you wish. But I think it is scarier than Vader, right? Because just imagine the helmet on Cisco. Because if you take the helmet off Vader, it's not very scary. That's true. He just like it looks like well, a he's piece more of Picard than Cisco, really underneath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't count Hayden Christensen as Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not thinking that way either. <laughs> I think the uh, the plan that Cisco cleared with Starfleet was questionable at best. It was a very high chance of failure that mm-hmm. they were just hoping that this guy would maybe clear the Romulans' check. Uh, Garrick's plan, however, was flawless and brilliant, and. You have to think that even maybe on a subconscious level that Cisco did know when he uh, got Garrick into this that he was going to see it through and just don't ask too many questions. He had to know that the Starfleet plan wasn't going to it didn't have a good chance of success here. Piggybacking on what you said, Jeremy, Cisco knew in his heart when that plan he sent Starfleet was approved and he asked for Garrick's help that Garrick was going to do whatever was necessary, even if it meant blowing up a shuttle. I think that had the Vrenik shuttle reached Romulus, we would have had the same scene with Cisco going down and backhanding Garrick. How did you let that ship get the Romulus? I thought we had a deal. <laughs> it would have played out basically the same. Cisco was just looking for a chance to go down and, and punch <laughs> Garrick. <laughs> the man's got anger issues, seriously. What I find interesting about the plan is that I think what you guys say is true that Cisco knew that Garrick was going to see it through and do whatever was necessary. But I think that Cisco was still hoping that this data ride was going to pass muster and then Vrenak was going to take it back to Romulus. Whereas Garrick pretty much knew from the beginning that this is not going to work. So I'm just doing this to get him here so I can then blow up his ship. Yeah, well, Cisco had to believe that, but uh, yeah, Garrick knew better from the beginning what yeah. the the plan was going to be all along. Just watch Garrick and how he's talking to Cisco as he's hemming the pants, and it, it tells you everything that you need to know. He's like, "Oh yes," and he goes on talking to Cisco, and you think that that's hopeful? Oh, great! And that's basic. That Garrick is all. Like flat with Cisco, not high, not low. He's like That's in Garrick. the back of his mind. Mm-hmm. It's it's all. I have a plan, and it's going to work. I'm gonna let Cisco think, 
that this other plan is going to work, but I just want to get the Romulan ambassador over here mm-hmm. and blow up his shuttle. Well, That's how Garrick is. That goes back to when he told Bashir, like, I think you need a new suit when Lursa <laughs> and Bator were on the station. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things, too, is that throughout the episode, you can you can tell because of Garrick's background in the Obsidian Order that, and obviously the Obsidian Order has already worked with the Tal Shiar before, he understands what it means to think like a Romulan. And this whole plan really is set up in a way that will move the Romulans towards the goal of, of being into the war. But it, it's because Garrick has done such a great job of setting it up in a framework of, of Romulan logic. Because at the end he says, because it's exactly what the Romulans would have done if they had been on the other side. And and so... Uh, I think that's what makes this so devious and and so um, you know genius on Garrick's point is that he's thinking and acting like a Romulan and setting it up so that when they pres- when the evidence comes out to them after the shuttles exploded, the the Romulans make sense of it in the way that Romulans make sense of things, and uh, he's planted all the evidence exactly where it needs to be to to get the goal of having them enter the war, and I think that's what's so kind of genius and scary about the whole thing (laughs) but that's also why you can't use normal starfleet methods to achieve something like this because they're not going to think that way well and i what i like what i thought was most interesting about this is it's not a section 31 right no issue here like that there is no section 31 involved it's a starfleet captain taking on himself to make something happen that he knows needs to happen and it created, I think, a really interesting question of is this a Starfleet Section 31 kind of influence on Cisco? Like, that he would even think about doing this in the first place? Like, has has and has Starfleet been compromised so much as well? I mean, that, that asks a lot of great questions because Starfleet sanctioned the plan of the fake data rod, obviously not the blowing up of the shuttle. So... Um, they're willing to use this kind of subterfuge um, when it's necessary. Now, obviously, creating some fake data to go to war, eh, we've seen that before. Um, and so, uh, but um, it, to, to draw somebody into a war is not as bad, obviously, as, as having somebody murdered to go into yeah. a war. You know, so. You know, I think with the council, see, I don't know. I don't know if I see any Section 31 influence here, I, I think with Cisco, it goes back to what Jamie was mentioning earlier with the Maquis, with that episode, the Maquis, where by being stationed out here, more and more and more, Cisco has come to see and become comfortable with the idea that the way Starfleet does things, it works fine if you're on Earth, but it just doesn't work that well in the real world out there beyond the Federation borders. So he's just more willing to take steps like this than, you know, a captain on a Starfleet ship that never leaves Federation space would be. And as for the council, I think it's probably just desperation. You know, they're scared. They've been hit, uh, you know, with the changelings. They've been they've had an incident on Earth. Uh, now Beta Zed has fallen. We find out in this episode how close Beta Zed is to the other members of the Federation, the founding members like Vulcan and Telar and Earth and Alpha Centauri. 
that we didn't really know in the past exactly how close, not not on screen anyway, how close betas that is. And they're just really scared. And so at that point, they're like, well, look, if you think this will work, you're out there on the front lines, so we're going to trust you. Just those damn casualty reports. People are dying out there every day. <laughs> Poor Cisco. That actually leads us into insurrection where we're trying to negotiate with Sasona. Yeah. Hey, we were having and a good conversation they... here. <laughs> hey. But that's hey, important, actually, because it, that it story, in... they don't really tell you about it on screen, but that is taking place in the Dominion War. That is tied into the war effort. Well, and, and I think what makes insurrection palatable even more is that when you tie it to what's happened here on deep space nine you are creating kind of a slippery slope that we're getting here Mm -hmm. with the federation of it making some very questionable choices for its own existence and it 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 asks that tough question what will we do to survive and and what will we give up and sometimes it's scary when we come to that answer you know humans are and 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 a civilization will do just about anything to survive Mm -hmm. when it's pushed to the the brink and uh just like m5 and it's it's nice to to at least see that this isn't you know um tiptoed around as a subject no we're going to deal with this head on with this episode and and i think that's what makes it so great and it, it creates questions like and even if you don't like the answer we're still asking the question in the first place, and I think that's what makes Star Trek so fantastic in the in the first place is that we're going to ask the question, and we just might not even come up with an answer because is there really a great answer? No, there is no great answer to this kind of situation. Um, and uh, do I do I think personally that Cisco did the right thing? Yes. Was it the right thing to do? I can't answer that question. Because he did the right thing for the cause, it, not necessarily as an individual for his own. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, so it, it's a it, it's a great episode just for for those issues. Well, let's close out here with a final point, which is how the episode ends. The fact that Cisco erases the entire log. So ultimately, the only people who know what really happened are Cisco and Garrick. How do we feel about? the ending of this episode and especially the fact that we're dealing with a Starfleet captain recording an official log, putting on record all the things that he did that, you know, violate various different codes of conduct for Starfleet officers, then erasing it at the end and coming to the decision that he's okay with what he did. I think we're seeing a man just push to the brink here uh, we're seeing a man who's been asked perhaps too much from Starfleet. We're witnessing someone with the, like we said, the entire weight of the Alpha Quadrant on his shoulders and this terrible strain to his conscience that he had to commit to ensure the safety of everything he believes in. In a way, Picard went through a similar situation uh, as Locutus, where he had this enormous weight of guilt on him mm-hmm. that he really couldn't openly convey to anyone else and had to keep it bottled inside, but... Whereas Picard wasn't directly responsible for the the decisions that he made during that time, Cisco was. Yeah, I just can't imagine uh, the emotional weight that would bear on a person's soul. 
if you're allowed to go to this depth on the main character of your show to open up a line of dialogue on whether your main character, the stoic and heroic captain of your Star Trek show, can actually go down this dark path, even though he's doing what he feels is justified and right. That just, that, the well of storytelling is endless and exciting when you can do a story like this with mm-hmm. your main character. Mm-hmm. I think the comparison with Picard and Locutus is interesting. Of course, the difference there is Picard, like you said, he wasn't responsible for his actions, but the the aftermath of his actions is right. that he killed a lot, a lot of people. Whereas the aftermath of what Cisco did here was actually, he killed, one person died, Vrenak, and otherwise the result of it is that it strengthens the power of the allies to fight the Dominion and ultimately helps save a lot of people. Yeah, one killed hundreds uh, against his will. The other one killed just a few for the cause to save thousands. Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, that emotional weight is still there on both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as yeah, as a person, yeah. Well, I think that this is one of those things, too. I think every captain in, in Star Trek has made decisions that they question, that they might go back and do again, you know. Not Jellicoe, um, man. <laughs> well, that's well, true. Speaking of Jellico, you know, there, there is that great reference in here to Leslie Wong, who was Jellico's first officer. She's one of the casualties here. Oh, oh I completely yeah. missed that. And I've seen this yeah, episode a beginning. thousand times. That's great. Yeah. Jadzia uh, yeah. mentions it. But I mean, I, you know, I think of, um, you know, you're faced with this decision almost when, when uh, Kirk has to let, you know, Edith Keeler die. And, you know, uh, for the betterment of the entire, you know, world and Earth itself to, to move forward in the way that it needs to move forward. Um, it, every captain makes a decision like this. I think of Jonathan Archer, you know, in damage, having to steal the coil from mm-hmm. the, the alien who is Damar at that point. <laughs> looks Because it's Casey Biggs playing him, you know. But he's stealing the coil because he doesn't have a choice. He knows it's wrong, but he he, he has to complete his mission because at this point, you know, the Zindi are still very much the enemy. He hasn't won them over completely yet. Um, Janeway had know, to completely skip that nebula, even though there was potential of coffee in it. Exactly. <laughs> they all make I mean, sacrifices. It's, uh, well, it, you know, Janeway has, there. there's there's some different decisions that she has to make. I think of the decision, uh, you know, it, it's a lot smaller, but, you know, the decision she has to make in Tuvix, you know, of what do yeah. I do? Uh, and she comes to the decision that, her ship to get home, uh, you know, it needs Tuvok uh, because without him, they have a much less chance of getting home, you know. So all of these captains, they all have these huge decisions to make. Some are smaller, some are bigger, um, but they they have things that they have to live with. And I feel like all of them probably have written logs like this and deleted them and because it, it, it it's too mm-hmm. hard to keep around. Um, and that would be interesting, a series, Star Trek deleted logs. And they're yes. all stories that are told by captains and then the logs are deleted at the end. I think that needs to be a Star Trek book series. So hopefully, <laughs> uh, you know, Margaret Clark is listening. Some of the authors yes, are listening. Yes, let's talk to Margaret. Tell her we That would be we, that, a great, like, that, short yeah. story series, you know, like, uh, or an ebook series, deleted logs. Deleted logs, yeah. Patent pending. There you go. So <laughs> I like that. All right. Well, any um, any thoughts, Jamie, here as we wrap up with Cisco erasing the log at the end? I honestly think it's probably the most 
to real life thing. Mm-hmm. A person that has done something that is as dramatic or as tragic can do. Because as a person who, who has had tragedy in my life, I've had to get my feelings and my thoughts out. So I would write pages upon pages of things only to throw it out just to get the feelings out for or or even the 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 things I was thinking out of my being just to get it off my chest kind of like if you had a a person to talk to just to get those feelings and those thoughts off your chest that's kind of how I feel like this episode goes Cisco is having us a conversation with us. That's why he's getting this stuff off his chest. And when we get down to that moment where he says, I can live with it. Almost willing himself that he's okay with it. And he can continue on from this point now that he's gotten that stuff off of his chest. Now he doesn't need that reminder later on that he may have made a misstep but he did it for a cause the cause to save more lives than what was lost in the operation yeah i agree so well let's close out here final thoughts and rating on this final thoughts might be thin here because we've covered them so thoroughly as we've gone along here and even erasing the log is sort of a final thought on this but we need our ratings as well so jeremy what are your final thoughts and rating I'd say uh, love it or hate it, uh, In the Pale Moonlight is a pivotal and crucial episode in the Star Trek canon. Uh, It portrays the very best and very worst that humanity has to offer, and it expertly shows that by showing these traits in the same character in the one episode. Uh, It dares to explore the length that a person will go for a cause they believe in and how Sisko believes in the cause so much he was actually willing to sacrifice his place in Roddenberry's perfect utopian paradise in order to save it. I'll give this 10 liters of biomimetic gel. And I'd like that in writing, please, sir. Had a feeling you would. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Jamie, how about you? Sitting on the Edge of Forever is my, my top Star Trek episode, followed by Best of Both Worlds as a two parter. And In a Pale Moonlight is my third favorite. So for me, it it epitomizes Star Trek. As I told you before, earlier in the podcast, I feel like this is the epitome of Star Trek. It is... It, it goes back to original series roots with drama and, and conflict, which wasn't really allowed in Next Generation or Voyager. And you see that conflict being resolved in the episode by the end. At least slightly where you can move on from that point just like real life because true conflict never really truly ceases so for my rating i'm gonna give it nine and a half barrels of 2309 the finest klingon blood wine vintage and only 0.5 of it martok is drunken already (laughs) that's the longest rating ever on the ready room i believe (laughs) All right, Matthew, what are your final thoughts and your rating? Well, uh, gosh, Chris, um, 
I don't know. I, I really don't know what else I could say about the the episode other than with uh, you know with Jamie and with Jeremy. I, I think that this show, uh, this episode, really does what Star Trek has done since its beginning, and and when it's on its game, it's making you think. Um, you know, Star Trek as a show is about making us think about what it means to be human and what it means to be uh, a better human, and how does that happen. Uh, and Deep Space Nine, I think, puts that to the ultimate test over and over again of, of how do we take perfection and, and, and how do we maintain that? Is that even possible? Is it even possible to have perfection in a society? And and the more we look at the Federation, the more we realize, no, it's not. It's it's still just striving to be the best society that it can be. Hmm. And it has good and it has bad and there is no perfection because uh, it's unattainable in an imperfect universe. Um, and uh, the the questions that this episode raises are, are some that I think, and I, I know, Chris, that you agree, that are more poignant now than they were when this episode aired. And I think that speaks to the greatness of, of the storytelling here, and it, it speaks to the greatness of, of the best Star Trek episodes. And so for me, I'd rate this 10 Lost Orion Slave Girls because, hey, we all know what Cisco had to give up here. I mean, it wasn't just his self-respect. It was the loss of, uh, well, quite a few Orion Slave Girls. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it to the man for, for letting that go. Excellent. Well, I'm just going to echo everything you guys said because I think you covered everything. Uh, I will say that I think that those who think that this story betrays Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future aren't really understanding Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future in the first place. The, The point isn't that the future is magically perfect. The point is that these are the things that we strive for. And when you strive for something, you have to work at it all the time. And once you achieve it, you have to work to maintain it or else you lose it. And I think that's what we see here as what we see in DS9. And uh, I I don't think that this betrays the ideals. I think that, Jamie, as you said at the very beginning, I think that this supports the original ideals of Star Trek and what the vision of the future was. So again, this is for me, it's definitely in my top 10, it's probably in my it's really hard with so many episodes. I don't know if I can say it's in my top five or not, but definitely my top 10. It's an episode that I would always tell anyone, you must watch this if you're going to get into Star Trek in any way. So I'm going to give this 10 expert holographic forgeries. Awesome. (laughs) All right. So Jamie and Jeremy, thanks for joining us today. Before we go, tell everyone where they can find you. So Jamie, tell us what you have going on and where people can find you. Well, I'm all over Trek FM. So look for me on another ready room. You've been on quite a few shows recently. Yeah. I mean, I'm like becoming a permanent fixture here. (laughs) Um, uh, Look for me on a continuing mission about Star Trek Phase 2's upcoming episode, Mind Sifter. You can find me on Twitter at jsanchez25, or you can like the Star Trek New Voyages Phase 2 Facebook page, and you can get me there because I admin it. And that's basically it. Awesome. Yeah, looking forward to talking Mind Sifter with you coming up shortly, and of course that'll be out by the time 
this episode actually drops to people. So, Jeremy, tell everyone where they can find you and tell us a little bit about your show, Star Trek Wars. Well, and thank you for inviting me. I love what you guys are doing here. I love Trek FM. Uh, I do the Star Trek Wars podcast. It's a podcast that I do with my wife and 11-year-old son. And every week we sit down and we watch five different shows of all five different series. So every week we watch one episode of every series pit them against each other. It's all for fun. It's really just an excuse to force my family to watch Star Trek, but I don't tell them that. (laughs) But we rate it, we review it, we give audio clips. It's just a lot of fun. And you can find Star Trek Wars anywhere that you get your podcast. So iTunes, Stitcher, Uh, you can stream it or download it at gonnerdin.com, like gone fishing without that G. And you can find us at uh, Twitter at the Star Trek Wars. And thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, it was great to have you on today. And of course, Jamie, great to have you on as well, as always. So uh, thanks again, guys, and we'll have you back soon. All right, thanks a lot. No problem. Chris, that was so much fun to get an opportunity to talk to Jamie and Jeremy there about In a Pale Moonlight. I think just, you know, an episode that I think about a lot on Deep Space Nine, and, and it always just leaves me uneasy and puzzled because I don't really have any great answers uh, to this episode. You know, I feel like uh, Cisco made the right decision and yet one that would still be hard to live with and uh, how, you know, our world leads us to those kind of places where uh, you're between a rock and a hard place, really. There's no good answer. And so you just kind of have to go with, in some ways, the lesser of two evils, which is kind of what Cisco's going with here. I think that's what makes it such a good episode. You can keep watching it year after year after year and and you still struggle with what he did and how it fits in. And it's so different from Star Trek that you're accustomed to most of the time. So yeah, it's, it's a wonderful episode. But In the Pale Moonlight is not the only thing we've been talking about here on the network this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM. Standard Orbit. Because we're basically pitching a, a story arc. Right. Like like we're Babylon 5, and we've got this five-year arc. Yeah. But we're going to have a three-year plus maybe the cartoons plus the movies arc. Earl Grey. Billy has 25 <laughs> symbols. He needs to trade with a non-Federation species using a different currency. What does Billy do? The Orb. They've already been kind of to that next step. I mean, he massages her all the time and well, he knows helps her that, out of the tub. Again. He knows that so, she has rashes on her thighs. Yeah, so. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, so... To the journey! You know, talk about a, a heavy-handed message. It, like, literally, on your back. It, like, literally, on your back. Like, I want you to feel the weight. You know, like, this, <laughs> like, this is the kind of non-subtlety that makes it fun. Warp 5. The fact of the matter is, Bakula is playing this character just as he should. It's true that Archer seems a bit uneasy, lacking in confidence. But he's the first human captain to see these strange new worlds. The Ready Room. I haven't gotten to the point in my research where I'm I'm that caught up. I mean, I, I'm very much stuck right in season one of Next Gen and kind of have That's blinders kind of on everything else right now. Yeah, boy, tell me about it. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast.
And we have kind of reached a milestone here, a little earlier than you might think we would have reached that milestone. This is the final episode of Star Trek, uh, for which we have a writing credit given to Gene Roddenberry. Commentary, Trek stars. And he wanted it the first part to be called Becoming Houdini, and the second part to be called Being Houdini. It should have been called Houdini Begins. Yes. And Houdini Rises. Yes. Melodic Treks. At only 22 years of age, he conducted the Munich Symphony Orchestra using 110 pieces, a 60-piece choir, and a 30-piece children's choir. Sometimes you need the children to get them high notes. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find us everywhere that you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, a great way to get the show immediately when I hit publish, and also just to help us out and help other fans find the show, is to subscribe. Now, you can stream the show through iTunes or the podcast out, but if you click subscribe, that helps us rise up in the search results and it helps other Star Trek fans find the show. Another thing that you can do to help us out is to leave us a star rating and a written review. We'd love to hear what you think about the show, and those also help us rise up and help other Star Trek fans decide if they want to listen to The Ready Room. And of course, we hope everyone will listen. Now, if you're not an Apple user, we have you covered as well. We're all over the place. You can find us on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. You can also get us on Xbox. Uh, We're all over the place. One question that often comes up is, I'm an Android user. What's the best way for me to listen to the podcast? Because I don't have an app like Podcasts on the iPhone. There's an app called Pocket Casts which I believe pulls from the iTunes directory because it's also available for iOS, but it's available for Android. And it's a really nice app. It has a great user interface, great features. It's a really easy way to listen to podcasts on Android. So in addition to Stitcher, I highly recommend Pocket Casts. Go check that out if you're looking for a good podcast application on Android. Now, if you prefer to just go to the website, you can do that too. You can go to the show page, you can stream, you can also download the MP3 file. If you look in the SoundCloud player on the show page, in the upper right corner, you'll see the little icon that lets you download, and you can grab the RSS link and pop that into any application or tool that you like. Another way that you can help us out is to become a patron of the network by going to patreon.com slash trekafilm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekafilm. Patreon is a lot like Kickstarter, but it's a way for you to support the creatives that you love on a month-to-month basis. And if you go to our page, you'll see our current goals, and you'll also see different milestone contribution levels. And we have great perks for you in exchange for your support. We have digital content and things like that that you can get, but also a chance to sit in on the recordings of your favorite shows or help us develop content for the network or become an associate producer. We have lots of things that can make you part of the team because this is your network and we want everyone to be involved. But we do need your financial support as well to keep the network going and keep our shows coming to you every week and every day. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekafilm. And we do hope you'll go and support us there. And we also want to thank our associate producer for The Ready Room, Renee Roberts. You can find her on Twitter at mares underscore 1701. That's M-R-E-S-S, just like the character from the animated series. Renee is a big supporter of the network and a big help in our content development group. 
and helps us keep the ready room going every single week. So Renee, thanks so much for your help there. Now, if you'd like to share your thoughts on today's show, we would love to hear what you think about In the Pale Moonlight or what you think about CBS and what they're doing with online streaming or even which episodes you like to watch on Halloween. Of course, it'll be after Halloween probably by the time you send in the feedback, but we would still like to know that as well. There are many ways for you to get in contact with us. You can go to our website at trek.afilm slash contact. Use the form that you find there. Choose to send to a show and choose the ready room, and that'll come to us by email. You can also send us a voicemail. There's a tool in the left sidebar for that. Or go to speakpipe.com slash trekafilm, and all you need is the mic on your webcam or your smartphone or your tablet. You can record a message and upload it to us there from the page. You'll find us on Twitter. Our username is TrekFM, facebook.com slash TrekFM, and also the Babel Conference, which I mentioned during the show today. That is our listeners discussion group. It's a closed group, but as a listener, you're welcome to join. Just go over and click join and I'll let you in. The way that you get there is to type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website and click discussion on the menu bar and that'll take you right over there. And I hope you'll come and join everyone who is talking about our shows there. We're having great discussions about the topics that we cover on the shows, as well as Star Trek in general. And we'd really love to see you there. So, Matthew, when you're not cooking up your own plan to bring the Romulans into the war, where can people find you? Well, Chris, of course, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can find me on a few shows here on the network. You can find me on the 602 Club, where we talk about all things geeky. Uh, it's, It's not a show about Star Trek. It's about everything else that we kind of love in the geek universe. And so I hope you'll join me there. You can also find me, of course, doing The Orb with you, where we talk about Deep Space Nine all the time, which is great, because if you enjoy the conversation that we had today about In the Pale Moonlight, you're going to love the orb uh you don't love deep space nine well you still need to listen because chris and i are going to help you love deep space nine as much as we do or at least i think have an appreciation for it and then i do hope that you'll join us on literary treks where we talk about the books and comics of star trek and in fact chris as i think about it now it's again still the only place that you can get the 24th century continued uh and if you're missing that if if you're wanting that join us there where we talk about the books because we'll help you find a way to kind of get in there now chris when you're not sitting on your couch talking to yourself about all the things that have gone wrong drinking yourself into a stupor where can we find you how do you know i told you these cameras (laughs) you've got to get these cameras out of my house matthew (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, Chris. It's it's not my fault. You know, Japan. They really like uh, their um, their surveillance. I, so. So. I don't think that's true, but <laughs> it's not China. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. Letter C and Brian with a Y. You can also find me on Facebook. Facebook.com slash C Brian Jones. And I hang out in the Babel Conference all the time. So come over there, join that group, and I'll talk to you about Star Trek there. And then elsewhere on the network, you can find me on lots of different shows, of course, Literary Treks and The Orb with Matthew, as well as Warp 5, Continuing Mission, Matterstream, Hyper Channel. And also, I co-host the official podcast of Star Trek Axanar with Alec Peters. And Matthew, you need to listen to the latest Axanar that I just published because J.G. Hertzler is on there with us talking a little bit about Martok and playing aliens on Star Trek and a lot about playing Captain Travis in Axanar. 
Well, Chris, it's in the queue uh, for this week, so I'm super excited about it. it. It was really fun talking to him and and his voice. All the topics that we talked about uh, off the air as well, hearing them all in the voice of General Martok w- was very much was oh, a lot that, of fun. That that, that, that <laughs> yeah, that just gives you shivers right there. All right. So before we let everyone go, also we'd like to remind you again about our sponsor, audible.com. You can go pick up Mosaic or any other book you like absolutely free at audibletrial.com slash trekfm. You can keep that book if you decide to cancel. Nothing to lose. But when you support Audible, that really does help us bring the ready room to you every week. So please, if you're not already a customer of Audible, go try it out. If you love podcasts, you're absolutely going to love audiobooks and Audible. AudibleTrial.com slash TrekFM. And we really thank Audible for their support of the ready room and the network. And also, go check out Enterprise in Space, the project that Larry Nemechek and I are involved in now at enterpriseinspace.org. There's a video there. You can find out all about what we're doing. It's a great space project and education project. It's part of the nonprofit National Space Society, and the project will design and launch an eight-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The orbiter is called the NSS Enterprise, and it will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space. And you can make it happen by supporting the project. You can also get membership in the National Space Society as part of your contribution. Just visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and get your seat on the mission. Well, Matthew, I'm going to have to let you go because I just got this new pad from Cisco, and I'm pretty sure it's a fake. I've got to go talk to him about it. Well, Chris, that's just terrible news. Apparently, Starfleet really needs to work on their quality control for their pad program. Uh, But uh, goodness, well... You know what, Chris? It's time to stick a guilty conscience in it, because the ready room is done. <laughs>